Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad you joined me today because Guide Talk is going to be happening in about 60 seconds. The table is full. We've got Dr. Peter Kapsner here, Pastor Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish. We're giving young Justin Jepson the day off as he's celebrating his anniversary with his wife. So uh, we'll get him in studio next week. We always enjoy the panel, and we've got lots of topics to talk about, but we're also open to hearing from you and let it, letting you decide what we talk about as well. If you have something, let us know, 877-933-2484. That's a text only, 877-933-2484. Now it comes that 60-second break, and we'll be right back with Guy Talk. We love hearing from Faith Radio listeners. It's easy to get in touch with us through the Faith Line. When you call 877-933-2484, listen to the greeting, and then press the number 1. Then, leave a message for a show host or general manager, Neil Stavum. You can also ask a question about upcoming events, and the event coordinator will contact you. Or, if you'd like information on a specific program, you can inquire about that as well, and the producer of that show or another staff person will get back to you. Another way to access program information is through MyFaithRadio.com. Look under the Programs tab for specific show information, including recent guests and topics. Again, the number for the Faith Line is 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484 or 877-93-FAITH. Give us a call anytime and leave a message to stay connected to Faith Radio. you joined me today. Thank you for uh, making this show part of your day. We've got Guide Talk uh, going to be happening now. We've got Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, and the lines are open. So let us know what subject you might like us to uh, chew on at 877-93-FAITH. Guys, it's a big Super Bowl weekend. What are you thinking? Let's start with that. Yeah, I just got back from overseas, and I would say that they hardly talk about it over there, and so I haven't actually followed. I literally had to rack my brain this morning to identify the NFC team that was in the Super Bowl. Okay. I knew the Chiefs were in it, but I was yep. like, who made it on the other side yeah. of it again? So it was just interesting to be in a different part of the woods in our world where they weren't talking about something like that. Yep. I remember the first time I spent over there, I thought, oh my gosh, there's a whole other world out here beside our country. And I, <laughs> I love our country, but I honestly, I really didn't even know where France was relative to England. And, okay. and so I just, I was pretty ignorant going over there. All right. You guys? So my, I, I come from a famous football family in Nebraska. Okay. My uncle Charlie, play, Charlie Brock, played for the Green Bay Packers. Wow. My dad got a scholarship and played for Notre Dame. My brother, younger brother, got a football scholarship at Nebraska. Whoa. And then there was me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about, That's where the story ends. That's the end of it, folks. Yeah. yeah. Do you plan on watching the game? Uh, you know, I'm going to be traveling, so okay. pro- probably not. Okay. What about you, Tom? Tom I'll Parrish? watch the game. I love football. Yeah. I'd still be playing if I had any talent. 
Uh, I've always loved it, but I learned a long time ago, and this is a true story. I'm in Columbus, or Dayton, Cincinnati, Ohio, my first church. Kids are young. We're in the car. We're listening to Bengals. It was a big game, and they're getting whipped. And I'm in the car, and I got so angry that I actually hit the steering wheel. And my wife looked at me, and she said, how does that represent Jesus? That was like 35 years ago, and I tell you, I've lost interest since then. No. I mean, I love the game, but you come to my house, I'm not going to spill any pop. I'm not going to throw, because she was right. It, it's fun, but it's meaningless in the mm-hmm. end. It's entertainment. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said, what isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Mm. Straight true. line. It's true. Yeah. Mm. And Patrick Mahomes, it looks like starting next year, he's going to be making like $25 million a year. That's Christian radio host money. She talks to you to renegotiate, Bill. Yeah, Luther Pastor money. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 they're washing cash around here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's uh, get into a couple of uh, topics I've brought along for uh, the day. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Is that a description of nine different kinds of people or nine attributes of one person? And then there's this awkward pause. We are well, live you know, radio. I, I think, I think <laughs> if you read Matthew chapter 5, that's the Sermon on the Mount. I think we're all to strive for all of that. So I think I'd say it's nine attributes of, of every person it should be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people say the Sermon on the Mount, it's so, uh, it's so comforting. And, boy, I, you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty heavy duty. You know, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go two. If somebody wants to take your coat, take give them your shirt. And... Mm-hmm. It, it, it's probably the most difficult passage of Scripture to obey. And in in one, Martin Luther was big on talking about law and gospel. And you ask the question, is this passage of Scripture preaching God's law or the gospel? And God's law convicts us of sin, shows us how to live, but convicts us of sin. His gospel assures us that through Christ we're forgiven. But you read Matthew 5, and, you know, it's not... Jesus says, yeah, you've heard it's wrong to commit adultery. I tell you it's wrong to lust. And he makes the law, really capital L, the law, and you know you need a Savior by the time you got done reading Matthew 5. It's 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 kind of heavy on law. Yeah, it's it's the antithesis of who we are. I mean, you go through 5, 6, and 7. We're not those things. Mm-hmm. We, we're not, if we get sued, we're not going to give somebody our cloak as well. That's not who we are by nature. And I think Jesus was pointing out, you know, take a good look in the mirror. Take a look in the mirror with with the Sermon on the Mount. We can't achieve that. And I think a lot of pastors, a lot of teachers, a lot of Christians think, if I just try harder. And what I learned is, I can't try harder. I've got to have Jesus. If he isn't in there working away, I'm not going to forgive my neighbor. If he's not working deep in my heart, I'm not going to give somebody my extra cloak. But when he lives in my heart, things begin to change. And it's amazing what I've seen Christians sacrifice when they really know Jesus and love him and they're following him. So I think it's a great passage, uh, but it doesn't help us in terms of how we're to live, apart from how we live when he lives in us. Yeah, I think it's a really exposing passage in terms of what you just said. And, and my understanding of the book of Matthew is that it's written primarily for a Jewish audience. And so the Jewish audience would have been very familiar with the religious leaders of the day who loved to fancy themselves uh, as being people who were the keepers of the law, and they kept every little jot and tittle of it. But it was always from an external standpoint. They were not concerned with matters of the heart. And so Jesus loved to call them out as being hypocrites or calling them things like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're filled with the bones of dead men. And so some of the invitation on the Sermon on the Mount, from what I understand, is to poke past the hypocrisy of just external behavior and saying, look, you need actually a heart change. It's not enough to just not commit adultery, um, but what's going on in your interior world 
actually matters. And, and the last I checked, I can't change the realities of my heart. I can't change the disordered passions, desires, and interests on my own. And so thus, I need a savior. So I think there are characteristics that can be revealed in a single person. But to your guys' point, I think so much of it was Jesus saying, hang on a minute here. You can't just hang out and do a bunch of behaviors and be fine. There's really something else at play. Exactly. Well, Peter, just something you just said. Okay, let's go go back to that. Uh, you know, talking about the way your heart responds and reacts. So, how do we how do we deal with that? Yeah, I, it's it's alive and well, right? It is. I yeah. mean, I, I think that whole idea when Paul really wrestles that down, right, in the Book of Romans, when he says the good that I want to do. I mean, somewhere <clears throat> deep inside, I'm I'm sort of echoing with the realities of what God's law is meant to be. But then I go do those things, and there's another power at work in my flesh that is waging war. And it it calls to mind that passage that I love. Uh, I think we've referenced it on the show before a little bit, where it says, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." And unfortunately, I think I grew up in Sunday school thinking that if I just did my quiet times and and did the right things, then I would get whatever it was I desired at that time, whether it was an Xbox or a candy bar or something mm-hmm. like that. But in, in the Hebrew, it's literally as you lean in and surrender into God, he begins to actually rework in mysterious, though very real ways, the desires of your heart so that they begin to long for the things that are consistent with the kingdom. That's what a savior does. That's what Jesus does mm-hmm. is he is rooting out the sin and replacing it in sort of a new kind of way. Mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember a professor saying, we know that our old Adam was drowned in baptism, Romans 6. Hmm. But we learn quickly he's a pretty good swimmer. <laughs> and and <laughs> that the, the flesh keeps coming up daily. And, and Luther has a quote on this, that we need to crucify our flesh daily. Yeah. Because it's you know, the flesh does not die until we're dead. In my 40 years of ministry, between counseling and discipling people, there are only two ways I saw people really change and become more like Jesus. One was through revelation. I mean, I've known people where Jesus has appeared to them or spoken to them directly, have heard a voice, completely turned them around. I've done that. I've seen that with alcoholics where just boom, one night Jesus was there. That's one way. But the most common way is when you and I read the scriptures, we hear the sermon, we talk to another Christian, and we come under conviction about our own behavior, about our own sin. Or maybe you have a wife like I do who points it out in the car to you when you're driving along. But what happens is that I always tell people the goal of the Christian life is not necessarily to try to be sinless tomorrow, but to shorten the time between repentance and acknowledgement to what I did was wrong and turn it over to Jesus. And I think the more we put it in his basket in that sense, then what you're talking about, Peter, that interchange begins to yeah. come. Yeah. He gets more control of us. And I sure wish it would, that God would act more like the genie in the bottle that I want him to act, that I could pray really hard on a Friday night, right, and wake up the next morning and have everything change. And sometimes I wonder about why is the process what the process so often can be, which can sometimes be years uh, of a change where you're working with God. And then suddenly it's like, wait a second, there, there's, a, there's a shift in the wind, as it were. Something is changing. But so often I'm more concerned about my behavior changing. And God's like, if I can get all the way to your heart, which is a much more thorough process, then you're not going to have to worry about your change of behavior anymore. Right. I love it. We've got some good questions coming in. Let us know what you want us to talk about. 877-933-2484. You guys can also suggest ideas too if you want, just so you know, as I'm pointing to the guys in the studio. All right, we'll take a short break. You are listening to Guide Talk. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
So glad to have Guy Talk happening today. Let us know what questions you might have. 877-93-FAITH. John from Connecticut said, I was wondering if you could talk about the context of 1 Timothy, where it talked about women should not be heard. It sounds harsh. Why would Paul write that? Well, I got to say something here. All right, Tom Brock, Pastor, go ahead. Pastor Tom Parrish sitting next to me and I for many years were in the liberal evangelical Lutheran Church in America where feminism was preached to the hilt. And every five years we had to recelebrate the ordination of women that took place in 1970. And every five years I'd sit at those conventions thinking, I don't believe in this at all. And, and so here's, here's my point. First Timothy chapter 2, Men and women, of course, are equally made in the image of God, but we have different functions in life. And and the way that the more liberal denominations now are getting around the scriptures that teach that women shouldn't preach over men is they say, well, that was Paul talking back then when women weren't educated. If he was alive today, he'd be fine with women preaching over men. The problem with that, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, here's what Paul says. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She has to remain silent for, now he's going to give the reason. It was not the woman who was created first, but the man who was created first. It was not the man who fell into deception, but the woman. And he talks about the way God made us at the beginning. He's not talking about culture or education or anything else. The way God made us is men do not flourish under female leadership in the church. And just see what's happened to the liberal denominations that have put women. I mean, the ELCA now has a head, head bishop as a woman. And these denominations are just shrinking. So I, I think women can do virtually everything in the church, but the one thing Paul says in First Timothy they should not do is teach over adult men. I think women can teach women, women can teach children, but for a woman to teach over adult men or exercise authority, as in like being an elder, that's supposed to be done by the men of the church. Good answer. Peter? Yeah, so uh, I would say some other dimensions of this too and and where I would um, agree with you Tom on this piece of it is especially the idea that as soon as we decide that the scriptures are for back then and they're not for now uh, we're going to head down I think a a path fraught with peril Mm -hmm. and I think it's a very common path these days um, for churches to take which is to position the scriptures only for that time and I think again that's very problematic now on the flip side of it just because you know you and I love to have back and forth (laughs) you're going to literally be the devil's advocate I I (laughs) might I might go to that place in uh, just a minute I was was reading some uh, pretty compelling work a number of years ago from N.T. Wright and others who Mm -hmm. their basic tact on this passage was to take us back into the time and what would we see if we were standing alongside of Timothy in the city of Ephesus, in this church that he was dealing with, and what Paul might be addressing in that day. So the question being, was Paul writing theology on the side of the Mediterranean seashore, just sort of pontificating on men and women, or was he uh, addressing something going on in the church? And it's too long of a topic just for this particular segment, but um, what uh, what N.T. Wright would suggest is that if you could go back into that church in Ephesus of the day with Timothy, what was happening is that there were so many different kinds of people coming into the church, especially there was a number of women priestesses who were beginning to take over the church where they were moving from the temple of our Artemis as these pagan priestesses, and they were coming into the church and beginning to take over. And so Paul is not addressing things related to men and women specifically. Uh, the, the women of Artemis were trying to come in and take over saying, hey, we were created first. We should exercise power and authority over men. And Paul is correcting that teaching. And, and if you were to read it in the Greek language, what N.T. Wright would suggest, again, I'm not teaching this right now. I'm just suggesting what he would say is that 
um, you would read it that I don't presently allow women to teach. They haven't been exposed to what God's kingdom is really about. So they need to sit back now and study and learn. And when they do come to teach, I don't allow them to exercise a bossy, lording over, enslaving kind of authority over men. So what Wright and others would suggest is that women are more than capable of teaching in the church, but it's the kind of authority that they're exercising uh, that he is addressing back in the day. Now, again, we would need another hour to really walk through that, but it was a pretty interesting take. The one last piece I would say about it is that... The word authority there is the word authentine, which is the idea of a bossy lording over one. And there's another Greek word, which is exousia, which is like the office of authority. Like Jesus has exousia and an office of authority. Paul wasn't using that to say women can't have offices of authority. He was saying that we have to stop all this bossy lording over enslaving. So again, that's just one other take that's possible within the text. I, I just don't, if Paul would have said, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man for we have a situation with women coming out of pagan. And if he would have said that kind of stuff, sure. I'd be more open to it's it. It's the hard part about but, interpreting but he, the text, yeah. right? But he says, for it was not the woman who was created first, the man who was created first. And the other thing I'll throw into this, Jesus chose 12 male apostles. Mm-hmm. He could have chosen six women and six men. He didn't. And why didn't he? I mean, if, if well, he was submitting to the cultural norms, well, then he would have been sinning. If, sure. if it's true that there should have been six female apostles. So put it all together. Again, men and women are equal. Women can do virtually all things in the church, and they do. <laughs> uh, but the teaching authority and the eldership is to be restricted to males. Yeah, well, I, what I appreciate about the conversation is I think you and I are both trying to stay anchored within the authority of scriptures. Yep. And I think where, again, yep. we agree yep. is if we decide we're going to chuck out the scriptures, the only question is, is how do we rightly interpret the authority right. of the scriptures themselves, okay. and that's where we need several See, it's hours. Where we of get class, into trouble right? because we take a particular scripture verse and we try to make a doctrine out of it. Right. One of the principles of the Reformation was that unless there are two clear scripture passages that give us two angles on the same thing, we won't make a doctrine. We'll teach it; it's there, and, and I've heard Tom teach this, and I agree with him when you know in that context. But to make it an oversweeping type thing, that's another matter altogether. And I think what I learned long ago is that uh, my wife is probably the best teacher of the Word of God I've ever met. There's no question about it. She's better than I am. When I taught at Bethany School of Missions, the best preacher I had was a 19-year-old girl who wanted to be a missionary, and she was the best preacher I had in that class. When she went back to her Baptist church, the pastor asked her to preach that uh, week, and when she preached, they had more people come to Christ that day than at any other time. Mm. Now, here's the problem. You and I can't filter out feminism. Feminism has invaded the whole concept of women yes. in the church and yes. their role, and we can't filter that out because those that I went to seminary with were feminists, and I still battle them on a regular basis, and so I have a tendency to, to push back against it, but I've also discovered the Lord uh, doesn't always listen to me. Yeah, and I think what I appreciate about that, what you're suggesting there, is so many of the, of the social justice movements of our day are about who is granted what kind of power in different relationships. And in God's kingdom, it's all about giving up your power on behalf of others, as opposed to trying to seize after or gain power or status or or sort of social influence. And I think that's where there's this energy, right, in so many of the social justice conversations that we experience is disordered. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why we do is because it's a grasping after power and it's simply replacing one form of disordered power with another, as opposed to we got to let all of our power go and uh, and bring the kingdom to life in our love for one another. And, you know, one thing that I like to ask is, how has the church understood that passage for 2,000 years? Yeah, it's And if really they have overwhelmingly only had male priests or pastors, 
And then we discovered in 1970, the Bible says something that we didn't know it said. I'm suspicious. I'm always I mean, suspicious, my, too. My, yes. my last years in the liberal ELCA Lutheran denomination, I go to, maybe it was my last synod convention before I led my congregation <clears throat> out into a more biblical branch of Lutheranism. We're sitting there at the gay, lesbian uh, caucus committee, or they, and it was always 100% on the left side. And I said, you know, why can't we have... Why can't we have one person on your committee represent the traditional biblical view on homos- on homosexuality? And it was some a woman pastor spoke up and said, "Well, we don't believe what the Bible says anymore about women not being pastors. Uh, why can't we just have a new understanding about homosexuality? Well, where does that stop? Yeah. You know what I mean? See, part so, of my problem is like you, you guys. I really believe the Bible. You know, think about Apollos when he was preaching. wasn't very good. Who took him aside to instruct him? Yeah, Priscilla. It says Priscilla. Yep. Priscilla. And Aquila. But it started with Priscilla. And that was unheard of back in the ancient days. Yeah. Why did they do that? That's Where was question. the church in their home? It was in Priscilla and Aquila's home. And the fact that Priscilla could be part of the instruction along with uh, They privately him. took him aside. Yeah. Which, but it never says Priscilla was the preacher over a church. No, and, it doesn't say that. Yeah. No. And I think to your point, Tom, that I appreciate too, when you reference the connection with um, homosexualities, it's a very common argument to say, well, if we're going to allow women in pastoral roles in the church based on throwing out the text, well, mm-hmm. then what's next? It's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is that you can't go back through anywhere in Christian history or even world religious history outside of Christianity that has ever allowed or advocated for a gay marriage. You can't find it in mm-hmm. any single world religious tradition, you can find streams of Christianity outside the Western Roman tradition that have allowed women as pastors. And I haven't investigated them enough, but there's a divergence there where Mm -hmm. there's like a unanimity of one position. We have never allowed people that are gay to be married, but there has been a divergence in certain streams around women in ministry. And, you know, I I too, Tom, know a couple, a a man pastor and his wife, she's a better speaker than he is. Yeah. A much yeah. better speaker. But I just don't want experience to determine what I believe on this issue. I want the written word, not the fact that she is a better preacher than For he sure. is, because he is. She is. See, and I believe the written word like you, and I can see both factors working in there. Okay. If I'm honest, they're both Me there. Me too. And okay. I can't throw one out totally to the contrast of the other. Well, again, uh, then again, one last. When we have a disagreement or a, a difficulty, I like to ask the question, how have Christians understood this for 2,000 years? That's a guidance for me. So, I agree with you. Yeah. That's yeah. a good word. Yeah. No yeah. question. That's about a really that. great point. Tom. It, it really is. You, you can filter it, and that's part of, I think, your, some of your tradition as well, is the idea of you look at scriptures, you look at the tradition of the church, you look through sort of the human experience lens, and you look at some of just like the reason lens. I think it was John Wesley that said, when you bring those lenses together, give primacy to scripture. Mm-hmm. But when scripture is confusing, look through some of the other lenses yep. as well and see where and it comes And I'm together. not denying that a woman can't take me aside and, and instruct me because they have. It's just that teaching authority over the church that I think is is off base. Great topic. Yeah, great topic. Guy Talk is happening. Let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss. Send a text, 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Kastner, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, both pastors are here in studio. Take advantage of their wisdom. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Guy Talk is happening, and it's uh, quite lively today, gentlemen. You guys are really engaged, which I like. Peter, you're just probably jet lagging, aren't you? Yeah, I was up since 1.30 this morning, so I'm you know halfway through my day, a little bit longer. That's so, nice. Yeah, that's that's You've nice. been in Scotland. <laughs> I have. Who's in Scotland? Yeah, yeah, we're all back for real, though. Nice. Nice yeah. to have you back. All right, here are a couple questions from listeners. Uh, why would it matter who was created first? Yeah, well, within the Jewish context, the reason why the creation order mattered was the, the 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 person who was the first son typically was given something called primogeniture, which meant that they were given responsibility and authority over the family moving forward. And so from that, it, some people can derive the idea. It's not explicitly stated, but saying that if we can prove that the man was created first, then therefore he has dominion over or has authority over um, based on the order of creation would have been consistent with Jewish thought. But there's quite a few other um, ways in which Genesis has been interpreted to suggest that there was a bit of a simultaneous creation that happened there, but she was simply revealed later that he was uh, created first, but she was also there the entire time, not an afterthought. And that's, again, a pretty big topic, but that would be why the the creation of first is what would seem to matter is because that person was given sort of the responsibility of the blessing over the household. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is maybe going to be offensive, but it says what it says. For it was not the woman who was created first, but the man who was created yeah. first. And it was not the man who fell into deception, but the woman fell into deception. Is there something about the way God made us that makes it so it's proper for a man to be over a church rather than a woman? I think that's what Paul's teaching. Mm-hmm. I think alongside of that, too, just if I take it back to that context of the women of Artemis who were, through their arrogance, lording over and enslaving men, because in their temple worship practice, they literally were enslaving the men and treating them in some really horrid kinds of ways. And so Paul was trying to sweep the rug out from their theological underpinning, which said that we were created first, therefore we're entitled to treat men this way. Now, again, I'm not saying that's the interpretation of Scripture. That is just a a way in which you could stay faithful to the Scripture and allow us women uh, to teach. Paul would have been a little more consistent. Uh, I know. Because in Romans, he doesn't say Eve brought sin into the world and therefore all sinned. He said through Adam came sin Mm -hmm. and all sinned and left Eve out altogether. And I wonder, okay, what does that really mean? And how am I supposed to understand that? And so it gets a little bit tricky at that point. And that's why uh, you talk about what is the church, how has the church always dealt with this? And I agree with that. Except the church, if you look historically, has not been too unified. By the time they got to Luther, we had a real battle going on in Christianity as to the authority of Scripture, what role the priest played, this and that. Since Luther, now we've got all these denominations, and we're, we've got Calvinists on one side and we've got Reformed on the other. There is no uniformity, if you want to get honest, even with the interpretation of Scripture. Right. What we need to do, though, is that we need to be honest with Scripture, and that's what I like about Tom Brock. And that's why I've worked with him and really appreciate him. He's honest with what the scripture says, yes. and that's what I want to be too. Yeah, I love that. I was just uh, walking in the door, and uh, George Frazier, who's part of Real Recovery here, was talking about uh, that Francis Chan released a book uh, really arguing for transubstantiation or the idea that the bread and the wine actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. And that's another example of what you're talking about, Tom, is that you have three different views of what happens at communion all looking at the same biblical text. And how do you know what to decide and how to decide on some of these views? Because they're... They're completely binary and divergent from one another. You can't say the text is arguing for women in ministry, and it's not. You have to sort of pick somebody's and stay right wishy-washy. It's, yeah. it's a binary issue. Yeah, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Can't, we can't say everybody's right, which is what no, some, no, some, try, some try no. to do. But mm-hmm. I'll give you a participation trophy for, for saying that, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll take it. All right, here's another question from a listener. Many young Christian men and women are no longer going to church. They are also marrying much later. Do you think these two trends might be related? 
And what I said off air was, well, if you're fornicating, you're not going to go to church. Yeah, and then you, and I think then you, went, is, ahead, then you well, went ahead and said it on air, <laughs> which I was kind of well, hoping but, you weren't. But there is some truth to that. Think of it. If I'm, if I'm living with my girlfriend and I know that my church teaches against that, am I going to be whistling on my way to church every Sunday? Probably not. And it's, I don't know that it's healthy people are marrying later. I think the way God made us again, it's earlier is probably better than later. But yeah, we've I, done this. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead, Peter. Yeah, I was just going to say that the whole later thing, too. I was talking to some young people recently, and they're terrified. They're especially terrified of having children is, is what I'm hearing more and more. And I think part of that is one of the things that happens when you grow up in church, right, is that you have role models around you. You have family. You, in theory, you have families and you have parents and you have grandparents and you get a sense of what maybe some of the process could look like. And so many of them are not experiencing that and they're terrified. Well, they are. And part of the problem comes in the fact that we as leaders have pretty much let the Christians down because instead of focusing on Jesus and telling people you have to be right before him, we've taught people to love one another. And love is the highest goal. Well, what's greater love than a man and a woman loving one another, you know, and being kind to one another? And so what we've done is we've created a, a kind of a ballpark around us that's trapped us. And we think we're playing football when we're really, you know, we're in a baseball stadium. The truth of it is pastors got to get back and quit saying love is the goal because love is not the goal. Knowing Jesus is the goal, submitting to him is the goal. And then love comes out of that. And if I really love that woman, I had a couple years ago come for marital counseling. They were living together. I did a lot of counseling. And so for some reason, somebody said, you should go talk to the pastor. They couldn't get along. So anyway, we spent 90 minutes together and talking about it and whatever else, and the typical stuff. Finally, at the end, I said, by the way, before you go, Susan, why aren't you good enough for Bill to make a lifelong commitment to? I watched her sit up in her seat and turn and look at him, and she goes, yeah, why aren't I good enough? He was so angry at me. I thought he was going to punch me. Three weeks go by, I get a call. Pastor, it's Bill. Remember what you did to me? I said, yeah, I sure do. You were right. You were right. How do we do the right thing? And they moved apart. They lived separately. They got married six months later. And to my knowledge, they're still married today. Yeah, it's an incredible redemptive story, right? And, but it took some guidance. It took some shepherding from somebody to come alongside of them that way. And I think uh, absent of the church, where do you find that shepherding voice? Where do you find that guidance? It's pretty tricky to find one. And, and I remember a couple at the church I served said that they went in to their Lutheran pastor when they were engaged and said, well, pastor, you, you just probably need to know we're living together. And the pastor's response, probably the best thing you can do to make sure you're uh, co- compatible before marriage. Mm. Come, and, and I'm thinking, whoa. Yeah. So when you've got churches that won't take a stand on this stuff, of course people are going to be fornicating outside of marriage. Yeah, and Tom, just to follow up on something you said, too, just around the idea of marrying for love or if there's a submission role in that. And I was really intrigued by a 2017 study that was done that studied arranged marriages worldwide and compared them to marriages of choice based on perceived compatibility that happens so often in the Western culture. And they said that after 10 years, marital satisfaction and specifically marital love was rated on a much higher scale for those that were arranged marriages versus those really? that were uh, that were, that came out of a perceived sense of compatibility. Now, I'm not arguing for Fiddler on the Roof and Tevia. I returned any of that, but I think it's something <laughs> instructive that um, the idea of saying yes to somebody for a lifetime to me starts with saying yes to is God saying yes to this, and it's a it's a place of submission, not because I perceive this to be a loving thing. Well, you think of those cultures when those couples normally they don't even know one another. Right. Families right. make the arrangements. They meet on the wedding day. They have to spend the rest of their time now because they've got a village around them and saying, you got to stay together. So there's that outside pressure. Absolutely. They have to learn to love one another. Where in our culture, 
we have a big ceremony. We spend $25,000 on the cake and the wedding and everything. Everybody says hurrah, and then they're left alone. Yeah. And nobody's there putting any pressure on them just to really love and forgive. We just let them on their own. They say, oh, I didn't know you two broke up. I'm so sorry to hear that. And when the personality profiles that allegedly make us compatible or something like that begin to break down two years in the rigors of marriage, then you start questioning and you think you made a bad decision. The whole thing kind of breaks down because you didn't start maybe from the right place. All right. Here's another uh, question regarding this topic about the marrying later. I'm wondering if it isn't a result of the more dominant women in our society. I think that tends to feminize boys. Thoughts? Or no one's touching that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tom Brock wants yeah, to jump right I, in on no, this I one. No, I don't. <laughs> well, I do, you know, I, I, it would be surprising if there wasn't at least some kind of connection between the lack of father figures, number one, um, that we've seen over the last couple of generations of families and helping raise their young men. Um, but I also think, too, that like where it's a tricky subject, right, is women have been treated so awfully uh, in so many different ways over the last, uh, I mean, generation upon generation upon generation. So the question is, is has feminism helped correct the treatment of women? And in some ways it has, but maybe one of the downsides of sort of the more militant or social justice version of feminism is that it seeks to demasculate instead of raising up men alongside of women um, Mm -hmm. at the same time. And that's where I think the quotes of like Martin Luther King Jr., who was always about a brotherhood of all of the people being raised up rather than seeking to take power from another in order to get power myself. And I, so I think there's something there when feminism is not rightly ordered, when it's about squashing down men, that probably leaves a lot of insecurity. I know a lot of young men and they're terribly insecure and wouldn't know how to even ask for a date, much less propose. When I was in high school back in the 60s, uh, we'd have these dances, terrible things. The guys would sit on one side and the girls on the other, and you had to go ask somebody to dance. Oh, my. <laughs> you know, so you walk over, and if a girl didn't want to dance with you, she'd just kind of get shy and say, no, thank you. You know, and you go, okay. You know, now. <laughs> you go jump that, out the window? Well, yeah. now <laughs> it's a different matter altogether. Yeah. <laughs> if they come out with a bullhorn and say, I wouldn't go out with you with the last man on yeah. There's some of that. Not there everywhere, is. but there's some of that. And so young men especially uh, don't want to be humiliated publicly. Yep. And they're terrified of that. And I think some of that plays into this. It's not the whole thing, but it's part of it. Agreed. When I was a boy, they had a TV show called Father Knows Best. It's being rerun now on, I think, MeTV. And then that was the 60s. And then the 70s, uh, the TV shows basically said, Father Knows Nothing. And then by today, it's who needs a father? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can, well we can artificially inseminate, you know, my lesbian partner, whatever you want to say. But it's just, it's sad that we don't have value for fathers and manhood anymore. Yeah, it's very true. All right, here's another interesting question that came in from a listener. God inspired the writings of the Bible. I, I wonder if the authors were as confused with what they were convicted to write as we are in trying to interpret. There's a Bible verse on that. Is there? Where is it? Is it Peter that the prophets of old did not know quite who they were predicting when they were predicting this, the sufferings of the Christ. So you've got, like, I don't think when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. I don't think he knew what he was talking about. God did. But he, I don't think Isaiah knew there's going to be someone born about, you know, 4 B.C. who will grow up and die on the cross for a sin. I don't think Isaiah knew that at all. But he was prophesying it because the Holy Spirit moved it. So, and Paul says, now I know in part, then I shall understand fully. So Paul, who was pretty blunt, very knowledgeable, would admit some of this stuff is just way beyond us. A couple of years ago, I was at a retreat with my wife. We were in Phoenix. She's a principal, and they were a big thing with the school. So I brought my computer, and I was writing a book at the time. I think it was my second book. 
And I had hit Chapter 8 and nothing. I mean, just nothing was coming to me. I didn't have any idea what to do. So I remember sitting there saying, Lord, you got to help me. I have no clue what to do. All of a sudden, I got an idea. I looked at the clock. It was 2.30. I looked at the clock again. It was now 5 o'clock. I had written two chapters, and I did not know what I had written. I'm dead serious. Mm. I had to sit down and read that, and it was probably the best reading I've ever done in my life. Now, I don't want to go too far with that on the one hand, but on the other hand, the Lord has no problem working through the authors to get what he wants on paper. And I think the authors, if they're really submitted to the Lord, and even if they're not totally, but pretty much can write out what he wants. And I experienced that personally, and I came away saying, wow, I, I've never seen anything like that before. And unfortunately, it hasn't happened since. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's such a hard question, right? I mean, what does the inspiration of the text really mean? Like, what did it mean? Were they just sort of these um, conduits for God, and they just were almost sort of like holy secretaries of some sort? Does they just listen to words come in their head and put them down on paper? It, one of the pathways that can be interesting, I think, to pursue is that when you see somebody like Stephen in the book of Acts, and, and he's filled with the Spirit, and based on the fact he was filled with the Spirit, or Peter at Pentecost, he begins to just give this incredible exposition of God's kingdom and understanding the past and the future and all of these things coming together. So I think on some level there had to be a spirit inspiration mm-hmm. akin to that sort of thing for the writers, and I would suggest that they probably knew kind of what they meant by that because Peter and Stephen did, though to your point— there's, there's, I think, a lot of evidence as well to say, hey, I, even the speaking in tongues of the early church, they didn't necessarily know what they were saying, but they were doing it, and it was clearly from God. And I don't think the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Romans, had any idea that would be Holy Scripture for 2,000 years. I think years. you're right about that. God knew. No. Yeah. God, God arranged it all. Right. But I don't think Paul said, here, let me write this for 2,000 years for everybody to read. Yeah, it was the 4th century church <laughs> that finally sorted that out through mm-hmm. councils and stuff, yes. All right, let's take a little break. When we come back more with Guide Talk, let us know if you've got a topic for us. 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Talks happening right now. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish is the power panel. Got some great comments, great questions coming in. My point man Terry said that the delaying of marriage among the younger generation could be the culture festering the epidemic I call the death of the grown up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well the culture said. seems to encourage delayed maturity and the infantile adult, especially a young among young men. Yeah, that's well spotted. Well spotted from Terry, for sure. I, I, I've seen it even in my classroom, the, a change in the last 20 years in terms of the maturity levels of young men, uh, specifically there at the ages of 18 to 22. That just, even in conversations, it's, it's just it's gotten harder. I don't know how to characterize it other than that. There's just a lack of maturity, a lack of experience. Um, and that's not a true across the board, but just generally speaking on a pattern basis, for sure. Now, I don't, I don't want to go back to the old, the good old days, but right. you'd go down to the park and you would have a bunch of guys and you'd divvy up into teams and you'd, and you'd enforce the rules yep. and you would negotiate the conflict and you do all that yourself. Now, if you sit home and play video games, you're not going to have that yeah. development. You're not going to have that maturity. And yeah. you know, I was, I went to brunch after, after church last Sunday and I'm looking at this table of, I think eight 
older adults in their 70s, maybe even 80s, all but one was looking down at their cell phone. And these people were in their 70s and 80s. And what is that doing to everybody in our culture? It, I, I don't know what it's doing, but I don't think it's good. Yeah, I think that goes into some of this too, Tom. I remember it was maybe 2007 or 8 when I, I didn't know why I suddenly experienced the almost cataclysmic rise in anxiety and depression in the classroom. I went from maybe one student out of 100 that was experiencing that to now self-reporting 70, 80 out of 100 students. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been so much stunting in development. Because, and it was because of the phone. It was social media and phone mm-hmm. happened right about that time. And you can track the impact of it. And I think to your point... I think it's almost like smoking cigarettes where mm-hmm. it all sounded so great in the beginning for everybody. Yeah. And then a couple of generations later, you know, people were dying from yep. lung cancer. And I think we don't know what we're messing with. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the teachers saying when growing up, what would it be like if uh, we put your thoughts on a movie screen and we could see it here yeah. in the class? Oh, right. And of course, that everybody was terrified, but thank the Lord they couldn't do it. <laughs> now, with Facebook, with Twitter, with things like that. It's not so much your thoughts, it's what people are thinking about you. And when you don't have to put some, go to face-to-face with somebody yeah. and, and insult them to their face or call them a name, it's a whole different world and it's intimidating. It, yeah. it really is. And, and if you had one of those events in a year in a playground, that really made an impact on you. And you Dude, can have like 15 and 15 seconds on social media. I just don't know what it could all possibly be doing. People are so rude yeah. on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, they, I, mean I, I'm, I have my Facebook page too and I write stuff for it, but... People just can be so obscene mm-hmm. and ugh. Yeah, and when you don't have to go face to face to your point, Tom, and you can I mean it just feel like there's a, a screen in front of you and in between you, it's you can just type stuff off and off you go and and you almost forget about it, but the recipient of it is just as devastating as anything. Mm-hmm. Here's a question about personal growth. Do you think people want it or they just agree to want it, but deep down they feel okay about where they are at? I think part of the problem is how do they define it? Mm. And it's kind of hard to have personal growth unless you can define where you're going. <laughs> when I was a kid, in the back of the comic books, they had Charles Atlas. And he was the weightlifting guy. Mm-hmm. He was big and muscular. And so every kid in my age group, you know, we didn't have it on TV. We didn't have it anywhere else. Well, we could look at the comic books, and there would be Charles Atlas and his home exercise. We knew the target. Today, I'm not sure people know the target of what mm. maturity really is in our mm. culture. What are they really striving for? Because maturity for my mom and dad was having a stable job, a stable marriage, stable kids, a stable country, standing up for your country, you know, that type of thing. Now, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I, when, when I saw that question, I was just thinking, most of my life I, th- I live in the should like I should do something, whatever should is, and however the target is defined, I think, to your, to your point, Tom. But it's not until whatever values I might carry about life or something in my life that I care about starts to get impacted by my lack of personal growth that then maybe I get motivated to do it. But that's a pretty self-absorbed reason to enter into personal growth is, well, now I'm finally impacted by something. Maybe I'll do something as opposed to maybe I should have done something before when everybody else around me was being impacted by it. I had a guest in studio, uh, I think last week, uh, who had a doctor's appointment getting to know the doctor, and the doctor said, do you have kids? Because he says, I have four. And the doctor said, how many boys, girls, or in-betweeners? Mm. <laughs> I mean, and this is a, a medical scientist, right? Yeah. Who got a degree in medicine and understands chromosomes, right? It's, that? it's just, it's, and, and again, I don't need to bring up so much, but the, <laughs> the liberal mainline Protestant, and I'm a Protestant, but... The liberal mainline Protestant denominations. I'm, 
I'm thinking the United Church of Christ, the Episcopal Church, the ELCA Lutherans, the PCUSA Presbyterians. The homosexual stuff is not enough anymore. Now we have transgender pastors. That The ELCA promoted transgenderism to 31,000 teenagers at their convention two summers ago, brought on a 12-year-old boy who thinks he's a girl to promote transgenderism. And I, I, it's it's sick when a when a when a doctor does it, but when you've got bishops in the church promoting this stuff, it's from hell, and uh, that's what we got today. Yeah, I saw as I was flying this last time around. I saw that some of the major airplane uh, airlines, United and American, and some others, were celebrating the fact that they were now adding um, M for male, F for female, and then they had another category as uh, well that you could sign up for. I think even on your passport. And I think to your point. Um, there's, there's a quote that I read, and it was somebody who was atheist, uh, somebody who was um, very much a left-leaning scholar, uh, not, again, not a believer or anything, but she did a, a pretty thorough search throughout history, and she said that when we start blurring these gender lines like this, we think we're living in an age that is becoming more sophisticated, more enlightened, more intelligent, we're finally sort of understanding, and she was going back through like the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Weimar Republic of Germany, a number of other empires that have gone to these places of gender blurring in the past, and they're all like... We are so sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But she said, and this is, again, not somebody who would be even close to a believer. She said, uh, instead of being sophisticated, it's those cultures are no longer believing in themselves and they're right on the edge of unraveling. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty haunting quote that I read um, that the very opposite of what we think is happening, becoming smarter, even in the the medical practice, is actually maybe we're missing something altogether. If you don't know the consequences of what you believe in, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. So I can believe in transgenderism. I can believe in all these things. Let's just love one another. Here's the problem. I'm on the other end of it. As a pastor, and I know they preach and teach a lot. I did probably way too much counseling, way too much discipling. And I dealt with homosexual men mm-hmm. who were dying of AIDS and who nobody was there for them. Yeah, I sat so there and sad. held their hands when they died. Yeah. I dealt with the women who had uh, unwanted pregnancies and wound up having abortions. And now we're living with the shame and the guilt and the anger of that. I dealt with immigrants who came here and they were terrified of coming here because they didn't have anybody to help them. And now we're just opening the gates up wide with nobody there to guide them, to give them an understanding of what's coming and as a result we feel good about it because we're so accepting and the reality is we're very punishing and and just i mean just, just the craziness i had an argument with my sister and she's very she's as liberal as i am conservative and some 15 year old guy had killed himself because he he was a, a woman trapped in a male body and and she was upset with me that i thought that was dumb wait a minute of course be compassionate with these people and help them but if i'm 15 years old i'm a male and i think i'm a woman does that make me a woman uh, if I, at, at at my age, think I'm a Puerto Rican uh, 15-year-old, does that make me a Puerto Rican 15? I mean, the transgenderism is as crazy as it gets, but uh, we're the ones now who are supposed to be looking undignified, uneducated, et cetera. Yeah, and I think uh, back to your point that you said earlier in the show, Tom, about <laughs> looking back towards history as a guide a little bit. Uh, also, that idea that you can divorce your sense of gender that, uh, from your actual biological sex. This is one of the first times in human history that that is an approved of idea within academia. I yeah. remember I was at a conference and a, a woman who was a sociologist from a local major university came and she presented the idea of the gender bread man and then talked about all the different genders that you could perceive of yourself that might be uh, in conflict with your actual biological sex. And it was sort of all the rage as yeah. the new information that we have, but yeah. we've never believed that before. In human history. And so ESPN makes Bruce Jenner now a woman and gives, I'm going to say him, the, what, Bravery Award yeah. a few years ago. And just every word's gone. Yeah. Okay, guys, we have a minute left. So 
safe to say we say a lot of strange things when our fear is offending people versus honoring God? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so, right? Yeah. And that's a huge fear, and especially in today's day and age. It just, you know, and I think even sometimes we're worried about uh, even our careers at times, right? I mean, if you if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, it gets posted all over social media, and the next thing you know, the mob is struck. And so I think there's a lot of fear uh, around all of that. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a gravestone in England that says, Here lies Lord Lawrence. He feared men so little because he feared God so mm. much. Mm, I like that. I do too. And that's called leadership, yeah, which is. we don't have and we need more of. It really is. My tombstone will probably say, ignored the advice. <laughs> 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 yeah. So anyway, that wraps up Guy Talk. Thank you to uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish. Gentlemen, thank you. Tom, you're going to be in California next week. Have a great trip. Thank you. Justin, I know we'll be back. Tom, we'll be back. Peter, I think we'll be, be back. back. Yep. Maybe we'll get uh, Jim Bilby over, too. That'd be really fun. I'm yeah. just throwing it out there. Absolutely. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk to Gregory Wrightstone. He's written a book called Inconvenient Truth, What Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. That's all coming up next. Hour two, just ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.